You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parenting Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. Well, good morning and welcome to Forest Hill Church. As Steve just said, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor at our Noda campus up on 36th Street, and I'm thrilled to be with you guys today. Uh, Man, worship was awesome. So grateful for Clint and Amber. And we just sometimes forget what a blessing it is that we have some talent and some amazing people that help us to respond appropriately to God. That's That's what we're gathered for today is we are responding together to God's goodness to us with thankfulness. So if you are here and you are new to this place, maybe you're even new to church, I'm particularly glad that you're with us today. And I think the message that we're about to walk through together is really made for you because here's the deal. We're in a series where we're talking about some characters in the first half of the Bible called the Old Testament. Some people that even if you don't know much about the Bible, you know their names, their household names, people like Job and Solomon Abraham and David. And the character that we're going to be looking at today, his name is Isaac. We started last week with his dad, Abraham. I'm going to tell you about him in just a minute. But as we do, I want you to understand why we're doing this series. And it's because we believe that God has been throughout all of history on this mission. After the fall, after Adam and Eve fell, after everything kind of got screwed up, he's been on a plan and a mission to rescue and to redeem and restore everything that there is. And all of the characters we're looking at, we're doing it not just because of uh, some kind of a history lesson. What we're after is finding out how they reveal something or show us something about the way God is moving through history to rescue. They, They show us a new part of the story and they often show us how God relates to them and to us. In fact, that's the the most important thing about them is not who they were necessarily because they were just regular people, just people like you and me with doubts and dreams and fears and failures and and just what makes them special is that God chose to interact with them in a unique way. So they tell us something about his desire to interact with you and me too. So as we trace them over the next few months, I want you to be looking for the character of the God behind the character in the story. Because it's really easy to just consider them like heroes in a comic book or, or a fable. But as we think about their lives... We often have to consider this, and I was thinking about it just the other day, that in the moment, they could have never imagined that thousands of years later, we'd be sitting in a room in North America reading stories about them, right? I mean, there is no way that they could have imagined that we would be interacting with them on this level, not, not only in the Middle East where they grew up, but, but here in America or Australia or Asia, that people would be hearing of their decisions forever. And it made me think about you and me. Have you considered that the things that you do with your life, how you handle yourself right now, those decisions may outlive you? That it's possible that they'll have more of an impact on people who come after you than you could ever see. Whether you are in middle school or high school, college, if you're like in the fog of potty training and diapers right now, I'm sorry. If you are coaching little league, if you're caring for aging parents, or maybe you've come to the point in life where you're having to be cared for. Have you ever imagined that how you handle yourself today may last longer than your life? It's true for them. And sometimes it's difficult for us in the moment 
to understand the future and how that's going to be impacted. This philosopher guy named Kierkegaard, he said one time that life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood looking backward. Don't you think that's true? That you, you, in the heat of the moment, you've got to just make decisions, but they don't ever fully make sense until you look backward. And so we're going to look backward at how God has chosen to interact with his people through something called a covenant we'll talk about in a minute. And also what we might learn about his character through the life of Isaac. Because he's really one of these people that to, to really grasp his story, you have to understand his history. So we look backward to see forward. Isaac's story. Last week we talked about Abraham, his dad. Abraham has a pretty cool resume. He's known as the father of three different religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. That's not a bad resume right there. Maybe even better is his title. The Bible calls him a friend of God. So, I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Can you imagine? Hi, I'm Jason, pastor of Forest Hill Church. Hi, I'm Abraham, friend of God. Really? Who calls you that, God? Like, I mean, that's just kind of a one-upper. You've met those people at parties, right? Um, Abraham has this incredible life that began when God came to him at one point and said, Abraham, I know you have no clue who I am, but I want you to leave everything you know about where you live, this place in modern-day Iraq, ancient Mesopotamia. I want you to leave all that stuff behind and follow me to a place I'll show you. I'm not going to tell you where. You just keep walking. And when you get there, I'm going to make you this amazing nation. I'm going to have so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren come out of you that you will actually populate half the known world. And you will create a legacy that will bless the entire world. That was an, an amazing thing. An incredible promise that only is more incredible because it was impossible. Because Abraham was old. And his wife was an old lady. And they were infertile. And so not only does Abraham have to choose whether or not to trust this God that he can't see, that is not like all the other gods around him in his culture, but he's saying something just outlandish. Like, we don't even have one kid. How are you going to make us the father of nations? And yet, something in that moment in Abraham, it just believed. And God wanted to give him a visual that he could trust him. So he says this in Genesis 15. God takes him outside of his tent. And the scripture is going to pop up. He says, and he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Can you imagine that? And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This right here, this is the heart of Christianity. That Abraham believed something that God would say, something that was too good to be true, something that he couldn't even understand, yet he just believed. And God considered that to make him right with God. That's all righteousness means, just being right with God. So Abraham gets this promise, and then he asks the question that you and I would ask too, like, great, how do I know I can trust you? I mean, I, I don't really know you. This seems impossible. How can I believe this? And so God chooses to give him an answer and a picture through using a really just, at that time, culturally relevant practice. Something that makes no sense to us, but it very much made sense to Abraham. God says, I want you to go grab some animals, various animals. I want you to cut them in half after you've killed them, and I want you to lay them on the ground. And I want you to arrange them on the ground so that there's space between and a pathway to walk between these pieces. Well, I'm reading that, you're reading that, and it's like, what in the world? But, but especially if you're a middle school boy, like this is why you should read the Bible. 
There's so much carnage and like amazing stories and adventure. It's way better than HBO originals or Netflix, I promise you. Uh, so, so Abraham does this thing that God tells him to do. And, and just so you understand real quickly, this is the practice of a certain kind of agreement that would happen between people in that time. It's called a covenant. And it's a specific kind of covenant where one weaker person is going to come into a relationship with a much more powerful person. Say if a king had vanquished another king. And what he would do is he would say, now you're going to be my subject. And you have to renounce and promise to be loyal, to not start a rebellion, to accept my provision and protection and my rule. And the weaker person would understand this was what he should do. They would cut the animals apart, lay them on the ground, and the weaker one would walk through the pieces, reciting the promises he was making. As if to say, my life depends on this. I will keep my end of the bargain. And if I don't, let be done to me what has been done to these animals. It was a really visual, sensory overload kind of moment that showed the seriousness and the intensity and the everlasting nature of that new agreement. So Abraham, who's weaker, Abraham or God? I mean, you can laugh, but right? Abraham, clearly weaker. He's expecting, I'm gonna walk the pieces and say the promises. And an amazing thing happens. Here's the twist. And this is the first place I want you to look at the character of God. In Genesis 15, we read, this is what happens. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Before Abraham has a chance to walk down the middle and to pledge on his life that he will keep his end of the deal, God steps in. It's the most unexpected moment. Why would the stronger person agree to be torn apart if he doesn't keep the promise? It's because God wants to show Abram just how different he is. That he says, in essence, I know you're going to fail. And when you do, I will be the one torn apart. Whenever a substitute is needed for your life because you can't live up to this deal that I'm making with you, I will step in and be the substitute for you. It's mind-blowing for Abraham, and it's a little weird for us. But it reinforces the point that from here on out, that's the way they're going to relate, as thick as thieves, blood brothers, literally. And so you understand that that's how God showed Abraham that he could trust him, the first time. Then we fast forward 25 years later, a long time after his promise of children, 25 years later. How many of you have waited on something for 25 years? How many of you are not yet 25 years old? <laughs> right? You can't even fathom this. 25 years later, though, the birth of Isaac happens. And it's really amazing. We read in Genesis 21, after all these decades of doubt Abraham needed to be reminded. He didn't keep it perfectly. He, he had moments where he did not trust God in the future, but God was patient and gracious with him. And then finally, Abraham is 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, right? Um, he's 100. She's 90. He just didn't tell us that here. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? A 90-year-old woman. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Isaac is a miracle child. He is the visible, living reminder that God's promise can be trusted. 
And, and I think when you read this, even Sarah talking about it, everybody's gonna laugh at us, not like making fun of her. Everybody's gonna hear this and go, that's impossible. It's too good to be true. How could God have done that with you? You guys are so old. It's, you should be like on the other side of this whole process of life and death right now, right? And I bet you over dinner parties, people come and sit around their house and they tell the story again. God promised we couldn't understand how that could happen and people would laugh. And, and they would look at Isaac and say, you're a miracle, kid. I can't believe you're here. You shouldn't be alive. It probably continued on past his parents. Like, can you imagine going to little Canaanite kindergarten and in the carpool line, his mom and dad are 190 and everybody else's parents are like 25? I mean, he was all over his life filled with the evidence that God can be trusted every time he turned around. He'd go on to marry a woman named Rebecca and they'd have twin sons. We'll look at that next week. He passed a legacy of faith and trust down and he was the son of this covenant promise God had made that would continue all the way up until this day in Jesus. But this legacy of trust is important because of what I'm about to tell you. And I need to explain the context a little bit before I do because it's more than surprising. In the time in which Isaac lived, in the ancient Near East, um, it was just expected that you believed in God. Like there were no atheists then, you know? I mean, doubting the supernatural is something that we modern people do, but when you were dependent on the forces of nature and everything else to provide you actual life, to let you live one more week, you had some way of needing to understand what was happening. So everybody believed and served gods, just a lot of them, dozens maybe, rain gods and fire gods and sun gods and and it was just also human nature to believe that if a God gave you something, if he provided for you, that he might want a payback in return, right? I mean, we're, we're that with each other. Have you ever gotten somebody who like gives you a gift unexpectedly and you're like, oh, that's so great, thank you. And inside you're just like, oh, I didn't get you anything. Like, ah, I got to re-gift something. Like there, we believe the law of reciprocity, don't we? It's just human nature. And it would be the same with the God, especially the fertility gods. The ones who would bring like crops and produce, fruit, baby sheep and goats that made their lives continue in abundance, maybe even children. Those fertility gods especially had the right to ask for a payment in return. And what often would happen is that people would bring the first fruits or the best of whatever they were given and, and offered as a sacrifice to the God to continue the relationship. So they might burn some grain or they might bring some olives or in several places in this time, they would kill their children, a human sacrifice, recognizing the God's provision. So we may not like that and it sounds horrific to you and me and for some of you, stories like this are why you have never wanted to believe in this God of the Bible because it seems like a monster. But what I want you to do is pay attention as we look at this story to the character that he's trying to show. Not for us to judge a cultural time thousands of years ago that we can't judge. Like one day, 100 years from now, people are gonna say, why did you guys still drive cars when Elon Musk created the self-driving one? What's wrong with you? It's, it's the same thing. We can't interpolate our own values on that time. But nevertheless, it happens. And so we find in Genesis 22, something that should shock you. But watch what God does. Genesis 22 and verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham. He tested him. That word can mean to prove, to show its validity. 
And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Burnt offering. That would mean he would kill his son and he would put him on a funeral pyre and he would burn him up as a return to God. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Notice that. At this point in Abraham's life, he trusts God enough that if you and I were asked about something that horrifically intense, I might pause. But Abraham already trusts enough to say early the next day he got up. It's immediate obedience. He is walking after God. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. The third day. Abraham gets asked to do this unthinkable thing. And God doesn't even seem to have the mercy to let it happen in an instant. He doesn't say, I want you to kill your son and just do it. He makes him walk for three days in an unknown direction to a place he can't imagine. Can you start to fathom the anguish in his mind over a three-day walk. As he walks with his son, knowing what's going to happen, that he's about to kill him and offer him up, can you imagine what is going through his mind, the dread of every step, wondering, how am I going to do this? I, I think about at night as they stopped, did he glance at Isaac's face in the light of the campfire and just go, my boy, how can I do this? God, why would you ask this? I wonder if he tried to gather up the strength for what was going to come. All I know is that I don't know how a father walks those three days. But he does. Then Abraham said to his young men, you stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then we'll come again to you. There's a hint of Abraham's faith. We'll worship and will come back. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Now we're not told how old the boy is, but he's old enough to be able to handle and carry enough wood to burn up a human body. So he's not like a little kid. He's probably at least a teenager, maybe a a young man. So Isaac carries the wood for his own death. And Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, I see the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And this shows you something about how Abraham had raised his boy. He knows what this kind of worship looks like. He understands, he's seen his dad perform an offering like this before, a sacrifice before. He is acquainted with how to approach and worship God. And I just want to say right here, parents, we have an amazing opportunity. The best gift we can give our kids is to let them see us worship and sacrifice and obey when necessary. Right? Invite your kids to watch you interact with your God to pass on the legacy of faith that Abraham's giving to Isaac. Isaac knows that something's off because this is not how you do an offering, Dad. There's got to be a, an animal to kill. Where is it? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He is trusting all the way. 
And so they went, both of them together. That line just reminds me. At that moment, don't you think Isaac probably knew what was up? That, that maybe he didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but something's off. And yet he trusts his dad enough, and he sees in his dad a trust of his God enough to keep walking forward. I don't think it's possible for us to, to over-exaggerate the emotion that's happening in here. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and he laid the wood in order and he bound Isaac, his son, tied him up and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I, I can't imagine this. I cannot fathom what it took to wrap his boy up in ropes and probably blindfold him so he wouldn't see what was happening. And you know what else I can't imagine? It doesn't say it, but why didn't Isaac fight back? His dad is a hundred and something, right? He's young. I mean, I think I could overtake him. I don't know if any of you are in a hundred, I don't want to wrestle afterwards, but I feel like if I needed to really get out of that moment, I probably could. But Isaac apparently doesn't. He's submitted to the will of his father and of his God. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. I don't think there's ever been a more terrible line written. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, just as he's about to take the knife and do the unthinkable, God stops him. And, and Abraham he looks up and he says, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham loved that kid more than anything. It was the most important thing to him in his world except obeying God. And he at that moment was at the point of full surrender. And God says, because you are willing to give up that which you love the most, to follow and obey me. Because you've trusted me like you did way back then when you just believed me and I counted it as righteousness. Because of that, he's going free. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Now, in the Bible, they're really fond of naming places. And I love the fact that what Abraham calls this mountain is not the place of the sacrifice, is not the place of the uh, unfortunate ram horns. It's not the place where God did provide Eden. It's the place where God will provide. It's almost as if every moment after that, when somebody looked at that mountain or asked what it was called, they were able to say, God will provide. He has provided for you when you look backwards, but trust that he will provide in the future too. He left a legacy of faith, both for all of the people of Israel leading up to us and for his son in particular. He wanted to make sure that word in Hebrew is Jehovah Jireh. And I just want to ask you and me, like, where's our place where God will provide? Where, as you look backward, is there a moment that you can point to and say, man, God came through. I didn't see how, I didn't know what, it looked impossible, but he came through. You and I need to have those. And we need to share those with our children or with those that we are mentoring, those generations coming up behind us because they need that story to have their faith built to the point where like Abraham and Isaac, they can trust God no matter what because this is faith. This is faith right here. Faith is obedience to God even and especially 
when it doesn't make sense. None of this made sense to Abraham. What God was asking him to do meant that the promise was over, the dream was dead. He gave me this miracle son and now he's taking him back. Maybe he lied. Maybe he wasn't sure, but Abraham doesn't think that. Abraham trusts God so much because 25 years of walking to a destination unknown made him strong enough to take a three-day walk with God and believe that he would be faithful and come through. Seeing his son be born as a miracle was enough to help him see when God asked to take him back that he could trust God. And, and I think it's really important for us to notice here that when it calls it a test, who was actually being tested? Or no, better said, who was the test for? Like God or Abraham, who was unsure if Abraham would obey? God, we believe, knows everything, right? Did he know how this was gonna play out? Of course he did. The test was to prove not to God that Abraham would be faithful, but to Abraham that he could be faithful. He was able to look back in that moment and see how strong he had become, how much his faith had grown, how many times God had come through. And when we talked about that three-day journey, not only, I'm sure, was he in anguish, but I just imagine that on that walk, he also did something else, something that you and I need to do. I think with every step, he was recalling where God had been faithful, and he was telling it to Isaac. He was reminding him, you can trust him. I don't know how, but you can, rem you can trust him. He's been good. And God wanted to test him with this human sacrifice that just sounds horrible to us. Not to say, I'm like the other gods, I'm ruthless, fear me. He's saying, I'm gracious, trust me. This is God's moment to show that not he's the same as the fertility God and demanding sacrifice, but that just like walking between those pieces, when that time comes, he will be the sacrifice. He wants us and them to understand that whenever the stakes are the highest, God comes through the most. See, Abraham in this time learned a ton about faith. And, and I, I have to just think, you and I have some, some decisions in front of us that feel like this. I mean, maybe not quite this intense, I hope. But we got things and you got things facing you right now that if you obey, it doesn't make any sense. You know what God would ask, but if you do it, it makes no sense to your friends. You'll be in the wrong friend group at school and that'll put you on the outside, but you know they're leading in the wrong way. Maybe you're an adult and it's about money and you know how you should handle it and yet you, you don't want to. Maybe you're unsure about how it's all gonna work out. Maybe it's about your relationships and you know you should repair one, but you, you, just, you just don't want to. Maybe you're choosing to, with your sex life, even though you know it should be different, you're, you're saying, I just can't trust that there'll be somebody there for me on the other side. I can't trust that God will come through, so I'll take it into my own hands. I, I don't know what the decision is for you, but I know this, that God's faithfulness in the past will strengthen our obedience in the future. When you look back at where he's been faithful, it will give you, like Abraham, like Isaac, the trust to make the decision now in the moment that you need to make. Because faith is always built looking backward. The substance of faith, the substance of being able to move forward is when you look back and see that you can trust. I wonder how Abraham got through that moment. And then we find out in Hebrews 11 where the writer looks back on Abraham's life and he gives us this amazing clue. 
It said, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. That's a fancy way of saying, like, the way God was going to come through, Abraham was about to end. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, while Abraham was going there with the knife and the fire and the wood, we're told that he believed that God could do the impossible again. Even though as far as we know, he's never seen somebody be resurrected from the dead. He's never seen somebody go to the grave and come back. He believed that if that was necessary and he had to go through with the sacrifice, God would raise the boy back up. That's the kind of trust that you and I need to try to build in this God. And Abraham's obedience shows us a picture of what it looks like. But more than that, it points us to the obedience of another one, another person named Jesus who would walk forward like Isaac up a mountain. And when Isaac asked his father, where's the lamb? The father said, God will provide. And when Jesus walked into the garden of Gethsemane facing the cross with his father, and he said, is there any other way? And God said, no, son, you're the lamb. You're the offering. You are the way I have provided. When Isaac was tied up and bound and led away like Jesus was, eventually he got out. When he was laid on the wood of sacrifice, an altar of worship, Jesus was laid on the wood of an execution on a cross. And yet Isaac got free and Jesus stayed down. He stayed in it to the death so that you and I could find life. Like if you can't trust a God that will do that on his own, who will say just like back in the smoking pot and fiery torch, I will walk the pieces when you fail. If you need something else to trust, you need more trust. Because a God who will do that can be trusted with your entire life. And I want to encourage you today. Maybe you don't have a Mount Moriah to look back on yet. Maybe you feel like God hasn't come through. If you don't even believe yet in this whole God thing in Christianity, I want to challenge you, especially as we come to communion in a second, to imagine how trustworthy and faithful is a God who would do that for you. Because he didn't just do it for the world generally. He gave his life up willingly for you so that you could have everlasting life, so that you could be like Abraham, right with God. So the question for me as we end is, what about our obedience? What are we gonna do when our faith is tested? How are you gonna respond with that thing that's in front of you right now? You need to look back. You need to see where God's been faithful before. And then the way you build faith like Isaac is you just obey what's in front of you right now, even when it doesn't make sense. You move forward, and you trust that God will provide. Because if I could leave you with this one last thought, it's this. Even when you can't see his hand, even when you don't know how it will come through, you can trust the heart of a God who would provide a ram for Isaac would provide Jesus for all of us and will provide in your future. But sometimes you gotta look backward to see forward. So let's pray. Father, you kept this story and a collection of stories about your people and about your work so that, so that we could be encouraged and strengthened and so that we might have a record of trust in you. And God, I know that in this room, there are those who are facing incredible, incredible decisions with monumental risk associated with it. 
God, I pray that as we look back at this faith, as we are reminded, maybe would your spirit do that in us right now, remind us internally of the places where personally you've come through that we might have forgotten. God, I pray that you would give us strength to make the decision to trust you and follow. Lord, for those of us who are parents in the room, I pray you would continue to remind us and encourage us to pass this type of faith legacy to our kids. Help us to let our kids see us obeying when it doesn't make sense. For every kid in this room who's facing that kind of thing at school or in their friend group, whatever it is, God, would you give them the courage to believe like Isaac in the faith of their fathers and mothers and grandmothers? Would you let us just just help us to become people of faith? And for those who, who need to make the ultimate decision today to just trust and surrender to you as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you would speak louder, louder than any distraction, louder than the voice inside that says, I want to be my own king. I want to be my own God. God, would you break through that and help us see that the only proper response to this is surrender and trust. We love you. Jesus, we're grateful for you. It's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen.